Welcome to Rocking Your Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, I'd like to review a new book, Freedoms Delayed by Timur Koran. Okay. So the Middle East ranks poorly for rule of law, trust, civil liberties, and corruption. A quarter of its residents want to leave. Why is it so unfair and unfree? Timur Koran begins his new book by addressing competing hypotheses. Islam, Mongol conquest, European colonization, and U.S. patronage. Let's go through them. Islam. Well, Koran insists that in Islam's first few decades, there were checks and balances. What about Mongol conquests? No. Authoritarian institutions were established long before the fall of Baghdad, he insists. North African countries were not invaded by Mongols, yet are nevertheless illiberal. European colonization. Well, Quran acknowledges harms, but asks why the Middle East was vulnerable to colonization, and furthermore, why post-colonial Latin America has since democratized. As for U.S. patronage, yes... But he thinks authoritarianism has far older roots. Wafs and apostasy rules are the real problem, insists Koran. Previously, in his book The Long Divergence, he argued that Islamic legal institutions impeded market capitalism. Now, he blames them for Middle Eastern authoritarianism. Is he right? Well, you'll find out in ten minutes. Or let's see if I can persuade you. Okay, so problems really began a century after Islam's emergence, reasons Quran. As Arab armies conquered new territories, high officials sought to shelter their newfound wealth. Drawing not on the Quran, but several hadiths, they established the Waf. A Waf is an Islamic trust which finances designated services in perpetuity. The founder prescribes its purpose, such as to support mosques, schools, hospitals, public kitchens, and families. The sanctity of wafs created a safe harbour for savings, argues Quran. Middle Easterners face perennial threats of expropriation, given weak property rights. But... Sultans generally respected these Islamic institutions and left them untouched. State officials, Mamluk soldiers and clerics thus all use wafs to evade taxes and provide for their descendants. Pre-1800s Middle Eastern buildings were often financed by wafs. Now these wolf strictures encouraged a culture of passivity. Prescriptions were laid down by the founder which subsequent caretakers were obliged to follow. Quran argues that strict stipulations prevented managerial autonomy. There was no room for manoeuvre. Lacking capacity to influence the services they consumed, Middle Easterners had little opportunity for political expression. Cooperating with other wafs was actually forbidden. Pooling resources was impermissible. So Middle Easterners had little opportunity to jointly tackle social problems, organize collective campaigns, choose group leaders, and hold them accountable. Wafs thus thwarted liberal ideologies and capacities. 
only individuals, not groups, were allowed to found wafts. As Quran admits, this probably lay in Sultan's aversion to autonomous private coalitions, the very consideration that excluded the corporation from Islamic law. Now, if cities were served by wafts rather than municipalities, residents may not have seen themselves as part of a broader political community. Each caretaker looked after their own, and there was no scope to coalesce. For Quran, waf rules led to a self-sustaining political culture of inertia. Rigidities also encouraged corruption. Islamic courts were the ultimate arbitrators. They decided whether a caretaker was complying properly with the founder's instructions. But a judge could be bribed. Quran argues that since Middle Eastern wealth was concentrated in wafts, which were restricted by discretionary rulings, this encouraged widespread corruption. Okay. That's the sort of argument. But let me add a few questions. How does Quran explain Indonesia's democracy? If Quran is right, if wafts caused authoritarianism, then all Islamic countries should be authoritarian. Yet, there is tremendous heterogeneity. Somalia is war-torn. Indonesia is a stable democracy. Clearly, Islam does not entail authoritarianism. There must be something specific to the Middle East. Faisal Ahmed offers a compelling explanation, and you may recall my recent podcast on his new book, Conquest and Rents. Where Islam spread via military conquest, political authority was consolidated under a dictator. Clerics legitimized the caliph's rule, and in exchange the, the caliph instituted Sharia law which raised the authority of the clerics. This ulema state alliance emerged in the 11th century and was then entrenched. I suggest that religious authoritarianism likely shaped the enforcement and compliance with wafts. In Southeast Asia, by contrast, Islam spread through trade. Sufi clerics and merchants introduced Islam to coastal cities. Instead of allying with government, Sufi clerics often extended their reach by building alliances with traders and, and craft guilds, uh, tariqas. Malay and Indonesian villages remain relatively egalitarian with collective decision-making. Today, if you look at VDEM data, Indonesia is just as democratic as Christian Latin America. I would add that in Muslim conquest societies, indigenous people gradually converted to Islam and adopted Arabic. As part of that cultural assimilation, they also adopted tribes and cousin marriage. To this day, cousin marriage remains especially high in Muslim-majority countries that were originally part of the Umayyad Caliphate. Now, Quran recognizes that endogamy exacerbates fragmentation. Joe Henrik and Joseph Schultz may argue that uh, Jonathan Schultz rather may argue that he doesn't go far enough. Waff rigidities may have been widely accepted by Middle Easterners who wanted their wealth to benefit their kin. As Faisal Ahmed demonstrates empirically, in non-conquest Muslim societies, there is far greater government expenditure on general welfare. They're much less nepotistic. Familial favoritism in the Middle East may also help explain the early decline of an Islamic institution that Quran sees as potentially cohesive, zakat. I raise the hypothesis that close-knit kin wanted to favour their own. Now here's another question. 
What about Islam's golden age? By emphasizing wafs, Quran insists that problems arose soon after the Muslim conquest, but this chronology omits Islam's golden age. The Middle East inculcated world-leading scientific discoveries, universities, collective learning, and contention, notwithstanding WAF regulations. Islamic science only declined after the Ulema State Alliance, as chronicled by Eric Cheney. Here's another question. What about Ghazali and cultural evolution? When Baghdad was the seat of the Sunni Muslim Empire, Persian theologians managed state institutions of learning. Transmitting Mesopotamian and Zoroastrian influences to Islam, these clerics were extremely puritanical. Since Baghdad was the wealthy Saudi Arabia of its day, they had enormous influence on Islamic ethics. These clerics also conceived of men as intellectually superior and rightful patriarchs who achieved ethical perfection by cloistering their wives. They repeatedly barred women from communal, communal prayers in the mosque. After Ghazali, Tusi and Davani, Islam became much more patriarchal. Ghazali sanctified not just patriarchy but also religious persecution. Quran acknowledges this in his broader discussion of apostasy and I quote, Ghazali helped to establish the practice of treating heterodox Muslims as apostates who deserve execution. He urged the killing of independent philosophers as well as Ismaili Shiites, uh, insisting that rulers and their military had a duty to destroy heretics. The fatwas of leading Islamic interpreters such as the Ghazali were collected in volumes for use by later interpreters, statesmen and judges. So, Quran sees bans on apostasy as a core problem in Islamic history. He gives many other examples of Islamic clerics and leaders who violently quashed dissent, persecuted various sects, and forced religious homogenization. I would add several points. First, clearly, Islamic institutions were not set in stone, there has been cultural evolution. Secondly, in focusing on the Middle East, Quran omits the region's post-conquest Mamluk institutions that enabled state-led religious persecution. So allow me to illustrate with examples from Morocco and the Ottoman Empire. Ibn Tumat, for example, travelled to Baghdad and learnt from Ghazali. Upon return to Morocco, he instigated attacks on wine shops and championed female seclusion. Ibn Tumat assaulted the Emir's sister because she was unveiled. Outraged, the ulama expelled him from Fez. Ibn Tumat then headed to Marrakesh, who also accused him of heresy. Yet again, the Almoravad emir had him flogged and expelled. Tumert found uh, supporters who were already Arabized. Together, they formed a mission of religious purification. In 1147, this Almohad movement overthrew the ruling Amorovad dynasty and institutionalized puritanical Islam. They rejected the Islamic principle that non-Muslims can practice their own religion but pay a tax. And urban Moroccans were increasingly forced to convert to Islam. Jews fled. Now, Ghazali became the main... Now, so that's Morocco. So clearly there was cultural evolution. It wasn't all entrenched by wafs. Uh, and so let, let me add another point. Ghazali became the major source of Islamic 
intellectual and religious authority across the Ottoman Empire. His wisdom was heavily cited in policy advice to Ottoman rulers. Under authoritarianism, scholars had to toe the line. Books of his critics, like Ibn Rushd, could not even be found in the Sayyid al-Pasha library. In the late 17th century, there was a common saying. If all other Islamic books disappeared, leaving only the Ayah, apologies for mispronunciation, it would be sufficient. So Ghazali was all you needed to know. Uh, Mehmed Semsuddin, uh, born in 1883, a professor of history and Islamic studies, argued that Muslim philosophy was gravely punched by merciless and effective strokes by al-Ghazali. So putting all this together helps explain Quran's central concerns, hofs and apostasy bans. Islamic armies institutionalized authoritarianism, which repeatedly persecuted independently minded Muslims like Alevis. The resulting culture of strict adherence to Islamic rules can also help explain why wafs persisted without rebellion. So there is an element of endogeneity here. Now let's turn to Senegal. Senegal has far greater religious tolerance. Senegalese Sufi Marabou strongly condemn religious violence. Political and religious leaders often stress there shall be no compulsion in religion, which is uh, the Surah uh, 256. In Popenguini, uh, Catholics and Sufis help build each other's mosques and churches. In Fatius, uh, Muslims contributed to the reconstruction of a church damaged in a hurricane. In, uh, in, in um, Ziguanchur, maybe I'm mispronouncing that, and uh, Fadiut, uh, they both have interreligious cemeteries. Senegalese people are accustomed to a negotiated coexistence between imams, judges and neighborhood chiefs. Joking kinships uh, enable fraternal ties across Dakar. Senegal's uh, political leaders have also come from religiously diverse families and emphasize their connections to multiple ethnic groups. Maternal lineages remain important because Senegal was never under Sharia law. Bilateral succession and inter-ethnic marriage sustain a culture of open tolerance. Children recognize their multi-ethnic heritage. In Etienne Smith's survey of Dakar, 71% of people said ethnicity was not a criteria in marriage decisions. 26% said religion was not a criteria in marriage decisions. 71% were open to a future Catholic leader. Imams routinely recognize the validity of court divorces, even if these conflict with religious norms. Now, until this week, you know, bad timing, Senegal has widely been recognized as democratic. That is consistent with Faisal Ahmed's argument that where Islam spread through trade, it adapted to indigenous institutions and accepted a culture of coexistence. So, let me summarize. Timur Karan in his new book, Freedoms Delayed, argues that the Middle East is illiberal for two reasons. One, Hof regulations hobbled civil society. Two, crackdowns on heretics inhibited dissent. Personally, I find this very persuasive, but a more global historical analysis points to certain enabling conditions. Post-conquest Mamluk institutions enabled authoritarianism and persecution of 
unorthodox sex. Conquest and Arabization also encouraged close-knit kinship and familial favoritism. So even if Quran is right that Hoffs and apostasy bans deter dissent, this could be endogenous to authoritarianism and family ties. Thank you very much for listening. Um, wishing you all the best. And if you're listening on Sunday, enjoy your weekend. Take care.